Welcome to Real Estate Investing Unscripted, a podcast from Fund That Flip, where we explore some of the most creative, innovative, and inspiring stories from the real estate investor community. With expert tips and success stories you won't hear anywhere else, you'll come away with inspiration on how to improvise in the unscripted world that is real estate investing so that you can dominate your next real estate deal. Now your host, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. And today, joining us from sunny California is Hunter Thompson, the managing principal of Cashflow Connections. Uh, Hunter's company sources cash flowing real estate investments and brings these opportunities to his network of investors, helping them build diversified cash flowing real estate portfolios. This includes everything from commercial real estate to mobile home parks and even, I, I think, some debt. So, with that, welcome to the show, Hunter. Hey, thanks again for having me on. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time. So maybe maybe get us going a little bit with just a little bit more detail on what you guys do over at Cashflow Connections and kind of how you got, got the business started. Yeah, so I really was hell-bent on getting involved in finances when 2008 happened. And for a lot of people, that was kind of the defining moment in their career, whether it was one side or the other. For me... I wasn't invested significantly at the time. So when I saw what happened in the stock market, I just assumed that that would be a great time to get in the world of finance. And I started investing in stocks. And when I say investing, not day trading, but similar to a Warren Buffett type of strategy, trying to identify companies that I thought were undervalued. And did that for about two years. I had success at that. And obviously, most people that started investing in 2008 in stocks had success. <laughs> but um, I had my real defining moment during 2010. And that's something that almost no one talks about. But for me, it was just completely a categorical shift in my thinking. I was kind of starting to ponder what my goals were as an investor. And the thing I kept coming back to is the predictability of outcome and the cash flow to pay off expenses. And as I was starting to realize that stocks were just a really inefficient way to accomplish those goals, the European debt crisis happened. And this is something I've spoke about many times before, but it's, it's just really critical in my worldview. I remember watching CNBC and they were all of a sudden, everyone was focused on the European debt and specifically the Greece bond yields. And so essentially for those that aren't familiar with this, it was basically the liquidity in all of the European banks, central banks, they really, really struggled. Very similar to what happened in 2008, but in Europe. And it was causing massive volatility in the US markets. And so all of the pundits were watching the Greece bond yields and saying, if the Greece bond yields, the 10-year, remained below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if it went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I remember watching this and just thinking, how possibly is it the case that something so obscure is predicting where my financial outcome is going to be. But more importantly, how could I have ever mitigated against a risk like this? Right. And so that's what really set me on the path to real estate. I got drawn into the asset class at a very favorable timing, obviously. And because of the fact that there was such a lack of liquidity in the market, was able to establish some really incredible relationships with some institutional partners early in my career. And so... I started from my own personal portfolio and brought in friends and family kind of as a small family office. And as we started to establish a track record, that friends and family fund 
turned into larger investors and went from five investors to 10 to now we have about 300. And so that's really how Cashflow Connections was founded just because of, you know, the challenges I was facing with the volatility in the stock market. Um, but structurally what we do is we have a really significant due diligence process and we have uh, really great relationships that we've created over the years. And so we leverage the size of our investor group with our due diligence process and provide access to uh, these great deals um, that I'm personally investing in. And that's kind of uh, the underlying thesis of the company. Got it. So, so kind of, kind of uh, grew out of a one, a frustration almost of lack of control over your financial destiny with things that seemed totally unrelated to the fundamentals of your underlying investment, right? If you're investing in Ford or GE or any other kind of large cap or even mid cap stock, like what does that have to, anything to do with like, Greek debt, debt yields. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember that, that same feeling and kind of thinking like, I don't know if I want to be in the real, in, in the stock market anymore. Like I have zero control, no matter how much research I do on these, on these stocks on whether or not they're going to go up or down. That's interesting. Right. And I'd say that even to add to that, I mean, control in the real estate sector, no matter where you're positioned in the marketplace, you're going to have more control because of the underlying simplicity of the asset. So what I mean by that is the risks are just mitigatable. You don't have to have a massive infrastructure to conduct due diligence on anything ranging from a single family property to a really complicated asset class like hotels. You can do it with a small company. That's why there's incredibly successful small real estate companies out there. Yep. I think the interesting statistic is right. Even even after 2010, when a lot of the big institutional buyers started to go into the single family rental space and were buying hundreds and thousands of homes, kind of on the the courthouse steps, like those institutions still only own about two percent of the asset class, right? Like so, like the other 98 is owned by small businesses primarily, right? right. Which I think is super super interesting. <laughs> All right, cool. So you, you kind of started off with an investor group that was, you know, your family and friends, you grew that a little bit larger. At what point were you like, you know what, this, this maybe is a business. Was that kind of always the goal or were you like, Hey, I'm managing this money. And um, I figured out a way to kind of uh, build a business around syndicating deals. Like at what point were you like, you know, let's turn this into a company as opposed to um, a way for me to, to, to build personal wealth. Yeah. So 2014 or so, was when we really started literally pulling investors together. Previously, we had a structure which exactly, which isn't exactly common. We were basically facilitating the investment of deals and, and taking consulting fees for kind of underwriting those deals, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, investing as well. 2014 started to be when we were actually syndicating opportunities, creating our own funds, et cetera. And of course, there was also another quantifiable jump in 2016 when we launched. We have a podcast, uh, the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. That has been a great tool as well, because I had already built up a significant network of people. And so essentially, my thought process was, if I just record the conversations I have with some of these people, other people are going to be very interested in that. And so that was really kind of, you know, those are two quantifiable states that take place in the last five years or so, 2014. And then again, in 2016, we had a you know, created investment vehicles that we thought were extremely favorable for investors with the sole intention of growing the business as opposed to, you know, upfront income, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really been the underlying goal. Um, I think that there's a great opportunity in real estate always. And right now, especially as you've seen the popularization of the crowdfunding vehicle, people are 
two things are happening. People are much more likely and willing to invest over the internet, but also millennials who grew up with the internet are starting to become accredited investors. And that's a really interesting opportunity and a data point that I think there's a lot of tailwind in the business as a whole. I'm sure you're obviously a favor of that as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I study these trends a lot. I think, um, I think the other interesting trend in, in addition to kind of this capital one moving online and to the, the wealth transfer, transfer between generations is also the kind of the movement from, and this I think speaks to what you're, what you're talking about already is this idea of more, more people seeking alternative investment classes. I think globally, the number is like there's $11 trillion invested in, in, uh, alternative assets today, and, the, and that number is expected to grow grow to eighteen trillion. I think in the next seven years. So, like that's a big jump of capital coming out of you know your traditional stocks, bonds, etc., and moving into something else. Um, and a big category of that is is real estate. So I think um, I think that's going to have some interesting implications for the market and perhaps stabilizing the market uh, longer term as well. So big fan of it. <laughs> Agree. Couldn't agree more. I think that one of the main challenges of the real estate sector previously is while there is a large buyer pool of institutions, comparatively, going back to the numbers you mentioned about single family, the buyer pool is significantly smaller for a lot of product types. And that becomes the main risk of those product types. So I'm a huge proponent of the mobile home park business. I'm a huge proponent of the self-storage business. The demand is incredibly stable. And there's a lot of data to suggest that. Now, what they don't want to tell you though is that that does not paint the whole picture. Just because people want to rent the property doesn't mean that you're going to be able to get the right financing. doesn't mean that your potential buyer is going to get the right financing. Therefore, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sell or go through the entire investment vehicle in terms of the, the hold period. So the way to mitigate that risk is to significantly increase the buyer pool. And that is what's happening right now. So your point in terms of stabilization, the likelihood of loss of principal is very reduced, particularly in those tertiary asset classes when the buyer pool shifts and the paradigm changes. Yep. And I think I think a big thing that like our business and I think probably to some extent your business is doing as well is these are these are fragmented markets, right? So the fact that we have digital distribution and we can reach a lot of these places more efficiently um, to provide this type of financing, one, it creates... Um, creates creates better you know customer acquisition costs and channels um, but it also brings kind of consistency and standardization which allows this capital to flow into these kind of otherwise somewhat esoteric asset classes right and it, it can be understood and it can be invested in at scale which is really what the big money wants right if they're going to invest in understanding mobile home parks they want to know they can put a lot of money to work in it correct yeah very cool stuff so I think um, you know, I, I think something that that I'd be interested in picking your brain on, and I think a lot of our listeners would uh, would would love to understand better is, you know, you you guys are doing passive investing, I think, right? Which means you're not necessarily boots on ground operating the asset on a daily basis. Which means there's a, a bit of um, trust and understanding and and underwriting that has to happen both at a project level, but also at an at an operator level, I'd suspect. So. Maybe if you could share with us, you know, I'm sure there's more than two or three, but if you had, um, you know, two or three things that you guys really focus in on, um, you know, when you're looking at a new deal in terms of what's important or what you care about, what would, what would those things be? Well, I'll give you a couple of, there's, if we're going to limit it to two, let's say, or three, I'll just give some interesting ones that'll create a couple of cool data points. But before we even jump into that, I will say that 
the, how we're positioned in the marketplace is to add a lot of value because our due diligence process is much more significant than a passive investor's usually can be economically. So if you're investing 50 or even $100,000, it can be challenging to actually conduct the level of due diligence that I may explain during this conversation. Because if you fly around to a few states, that cash flow from year one is probably going to be deteriorated significantly. Just wanted to say that as a disclaimer because it's important. So obviously, if you're relying on an operating partner, the sponsor is the most important part of the entire transaction. Um, this is something that Jeremy Roll says, who, you know, him and I have done a lot of deals together. You can invest in a 100% occupied A-class property in Beverly Hills. But if the property manager, the sponsor commits fraud, everyone's losing money. And so all of our due diligence process, the entire thing is really looking between the lines to see who we're making a bet on. And are they putting themselves in a position to deliver on their promises to investors? Because at the end of the day, our compensation is tied to their compensation. And so we have to ensure that they're going to be able to do that. And so some of the things that most investors can do, and people typically talk about references or referrals. Well, I like to do referrals as well. But what I like to do first is look at the entire deal, anticipate who the sponsor is likely working with, and then specifically request those professional references. So it's not that I want to talk to their investors, which are fine, but it's usually just their friends, right? Yep. What I like to talk to is the lenders, the construction companies, the CPAs, the attorneys. These are people that not only have an intimate knowledge of the underworkings of the business, but also are professionally in a position to they need to be honest with you. Because if you end up working with them, there needs to be some transparency there. So I really like that. The things that you can uncover, just ensuring that what they're claiming is lining up with their prefer, uh, their professionals are saying as well. It's a really good thing to kind of understand. Um, something else you can do is, you know, I live in Los Angeles, like you mentioned, there's a fantastic shopping area here called the Grove. I can go take a bunch of photos with a photographer of the Grove and put that up on my website and say, you know, this is our third asset we own. It's a multi-billion dollar shopping center in Los Angeles. Um, you have to actually verify those claims. So one of the ways to do that is you can pull title on these properties. There's a couple companies out there that can do that. Soldify.com, Chicago Title Company, RealQuest, companies like that. And you'll actually trace the entity back to the sponsor's name. And just that right there is something that most investors aren't doing. But once you start to get your passive investing, once you're taking it more seriously, those are the types of strategies that can really help you um, in terms of verifying some of the claims that the sponsor is making. But at the end of the day, it's all about a gut check. Um, if you're investing in real estate, these are illiquid investments that not only do you have to have a good feeling about the person now, you have to have a good person, you have a good feeling about them in seven to 10 years. Right. Is this person going to be able to execute in that 10th year when you're liquidating the asset, when you're actually getting the multiple of income you created during that period? It's a critical portion of the hold period. And they have to be able to act along in your incentives as well. So all of it goes back to the sponsor. And that was kind of just the first thing that came to mind. Are you guys looking for a lot of previous experience and um, you know track record, or, or will you take kind of a, a a longer shot if the economics are structured for a newer type sponsor if they've you know they had a good deal and some other kind of relevant professional experience, or what, what kind of boxes are you guys looking to check on on the sponsor aside from you know making sure they're not a fraudster and, and what they say is true is actually is actually true, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. So, and again, this is just our strategy, but for me, I'm extremely skeptical of pretty much everything right now. 
And so we will not be sourcing sponsors that are not referred by word of mouth anytime soon. Um, basically every sponsor we're working with right now, we've been working with for several years and I don't anticipate that changing. It's just because it's very challenging right now to verify that the sponsor's track record is due to their expertise as opposed to market conditions. This has been very favorable time. So, but having said that we look for 10 years in the business, a hundred million dollars or more under management, um, 10 properties taken full cycle, a million square feet or more. Any of those single metrics will usually get you in a good conversation because there's not that many companies out there that are in that size that also are taking on additional investors and are also publicly traded. So it's a, the real estate and commercial real estate is a massive company, but once you start adding those little hurdles on there, it gets to a pretty small group and, you know, turns out we're all friends anyway. So we can go to the same places, go to the same conferences, et cetera. Got it. Okay. So sponsors, number one thing that you guys look for and and do the due diligence, um, specifically for you guys, you are looking for some experience and some, some real assets under management and, and kind of, you know, taking a property all the way through the cycle. What about at the deal level? Is there like one or two things that you're kind of looking at either from a market perspective or an IRR or, you know, ROI perspective that, that, you know, really matters for you guys? Sure. I'll go through kind of a high level of, of all those because it's all important part of the process. Yeah. But I'd say on a property specific level, um, first of all, I want to make sure that the property is economically viable. One way to do that is just to ensure that there's a, a large enough number of daily travel vehicles. And so this is the number of vehicles that travel by the property basically or nearby street. Um, I like to see a minimum of twenty to 25,000. Uh, that doesn't mean that's the lowest you should go, but I start to be uncomfortable around that point. Um, I'm also really concerned with tenant diversification. So just physically, I want to see the capacity in self-storage, for example, we like to see at least 400 units. In multifamily, I like to see at least 100 units. In retail, I like to see 10 to 13 tenants. Uh, Senior living, again, I like to see 100 beds or so. And that's just basically because the predictability of outcome increases when you have that product type, but also the liquidity. Um, probably a lot of your guests have probably said, you know, it's easier to get a million dollar loan than it is to get a $200,000 loan. And so we like those economies of scale um, for a variety of reasons. Um, in terms of risk profile, I like the value add area, uh, especially if you can create that value through management expertise as opposed to capital expenditure. So we're actually in the process of rebranding the company from Cashflow Connections to ASIM Capital, which is short for asymmetric. And those asymmetric returns are really generated in my opinion, by not doing things like expanding a facility or developing a facility, you'll get a proportional return. Those are great ways to juice the returns or the IRR. But from my perspective, you're incurring risk, which is proportional to that outcome. Mm -hmm. If you can buy a property, like a self-storage property, for example, this is an incredible uh, strategy. You can buy an asset that has no relationship with the truck rental company, which there are many all over the country. We buy that asset And then within 30 days, we have our contact at U-Haul, park 30 trucks on our facility. We rent out the property to the tenants as they're moving and get a commission for facilitating the transaction. I have invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line because you're not owning the asset. You're not even maintaining the trucks. You're just allowing, you're facilitating the transaction, right? And so- from my perspective, if you're adding $600,000 of value to an asset by doing that, that's an asymmetric outcome. 
Now we do those other things as well, convert standard units to climate controlled units. But again, that's a proportional. Um, the asymmetric is really how we look at it. And of course, this was just focused on property specific due diligence, but I'll get give you an idea of the risk profile and the types of assets we invest in. Got it. So value add doesn't always mean, you know, capital improvements. I think this is an important point. There's other things that can be done um, to increase income from the property. I think we heard a story at the conference we were just recently at of adding a propane tank to the, uh, I think it was a mobile home park and selling, selling propane to the campers that came in. I was like, Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of, a lot of income. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, super smart especially in the self-storage business, can be very profitable because you start doing things like selling merchandise. You, you start doing things like admin fees, late fees, anticipating when to buy and sell certain items. And you know if you're adding $1,500 a month, it's something like that. It's just a no-brainer. And the, complicated, the more complicated it can be, the more significant there is a discrepancy between a mom-and-pop owner and a best-in-class owner. So then you start looking around and you're like, wow, there's all these mom-and-pop owners all you have to do is implement this infrastructure, leverage these relationships. And that's when that asymmetric thing really comes into play. Yeah, that's really, it's really cool. So you guys are obviously a big proponent of this, this kind of more passive investing. Maybe, maybe tell us a little bit why you think passive investing is, is the way to go or, or maybe to balance it out a little bit. What are some of the pros and cons of, of being a passive investor as opposed to being more of, a, more of an active investor or an op- operator? <laughs> Sure. So I was actually asked to be in a debate on this topic um, at this recent conference. It was pretty funny because, uh, you know, obviously we're up there with sponsors and most of the audience is sponsors, which is why they're at the conference in the first place. So I just decided to open up with just go straight for the jugular and say, look, it's just a matter of preference. Um, You know, it's just a matter of if you want to be diversified, if you want to rely on people's time, energy, expertise, and access to capital, it's fine. And if you want to put all of your eggs in one basket and be signing away your life on personally guaranteed loans that, quote, are non-recourse, but end up always being recourse in the event of a default, then the active approach is better for you. It's just a matter of preference. <laughs> well, I <laughs> Pulling think no punches. <laughs> right, exactly. I think that that is in some ways, a fair assessment. I'm just a huge proponent of that predictability of outcome. And the argument that I made during the debate, uh, which was a little bit just, but I think there's some truth to it. If you are going to be successful in business, if you are going to have any kind of market advantage, you have to specialize. Specialization is the key. And the division of labor is an incredible tool from an economic standpoint. It's the reason we have everything out there is even things that are as simple as a pencil. And this is an example Milton Friedman made famous. But what I'd say is that specialization is antithetic to financial well-being. If you are hyper allocated to a particular asset class, a particular geographic location, a particular property manager, um, that is not how you get that predictability of outcome. And if your goal is, quote, financial freedom, to me, that definition is the predictability of outcome, knowing that you can pay off your expenses without working. And it's hard for me to get to that space without having a, a significant portion of my portfolio passively invested. So essentially, we're able to leverage other people's division of labor, their ability to raise significant money, their ability to get a multi $10 million loan. And in my opinion, the return profile is pretty comparable. Uh, if you're able to invest in an asset class with a sponsor that is extremely elite. Um, and this is not just sounds like an infomercial about passive investing, but just I'll put it this way. If I were to spend 10 years exclusively focusing on the mobile home park business, 
I genuinely think I'd probably be half as good as some of the sponsors we work with. So even if the split is 50-50, it's pretty similar, but that doesn't even get into the whole time component. So like I said, I'm a huge proponent of it. And even if it's just a small person in your portfolio, I think it's certainly wise to consider. Now there are risks, which we can talk about, but um, I'm a huge proponent of it. So so maybe to, maybe to kind of uh, paraphrase a little bit, what you're saying is I think what you're saying is y- you decided your specialization is raising capital, syndicating capital, you know, coming in with, with equity or a mezzanine piece, if you will, to help others that specialize in uh, whether it's apartment kind of repositioning or mobile home, mobile, mobile home park kind of operators, you leverage their specialization of, around operating that asset and perhaps raising debt. The value you bring to that person is the capital raising on the equity side, which I think if you ask a lot of true operators, like a lot of them don't like raising the money, right? right. Or, or, or are good at it. So it's, it's not that one's better than the other per se. I think it, it has more to do with um, being honest with yourself and understanding one, what do you like to do? Uh, yes. What do you prefer to do? And, and, and that generally aligns with what you're good at, right? Um, 100%. It's yeah. your unique ability. I mean, look, here's the way that I define that term as blatantly as possible. Um, and again, I appreciate letting me come on the show, but let me just make it how clear I appreciate <laughs> it. If I had three more zeros in my bank account, this is exactly what I would be doing right now. Unquestionably. This yeah. is my favorite part of the day. And so I love talking on podcasts. I love communicating with investors. So part of our value add is the capital. Part of it is that investor admin, which I genuinely love doing. I love creating articles. I love helping people understand the benefits of investing in particular asset classes and walking them through that process. Because I know that if, man, if someone had just explained it to me earlier on, I would have had, it just been earlier in my career that I would have understood it. And so that's my unique ability. And so again, I'm a huge proponent of the division of labor. So we rely on the expertise of people that hyper-specialize in one particular asset class, one geographic location, et cetera. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about maybe some of the um, the risks, if you will, or the, the things you got to look out for if you are going to be a passive investor or, or maybe some of the downsides. Yeah. So it's interesting because I anticipate that we may get into this topic. And at the beginning, you know, you said when you invest in the stock market, you feel like you can't control it. And that's actually a lot of people get into real estate because they want more control. Now, within the real estate sector, though, you have much more control than you do in something like a stock market because of that mitigatable risk that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. However, I am willing to give up a certain amount of control in exchange for diversification because of that predictability of outcome. So when you're investing passively, I should, I'll just say on the other side of the table. So if you're investing actively, you dictate when to raise rents. You dictate whether or not to fix the toilet or the roof. You dictate when you want to sell the asset or refinance the asset. When you're syndicating and you're one of 50 investors in a large fund, that control is deferred to someone else. Now, the hope is that their expertise is such that they make better decisions than you and then therefore can make such better decisions than you that they make up for the the split above a preferred return, for example. And so one of the major risks is just assuming that or ensuring that you honestly think about what your goals are and what your personality type is. Because if you're the type of person that wants to control every aspect of the investment vehicle, passive investing is going to present a major challenge for you regardless of how well it performs. And we've been in deals with investors that truly didn't grasp that going in. The return profile has been a total home run, but every quarter it's like, wait, I'm concerned about this and this and this. It's like, well, everything's going fine. And 
this is a quarterly <laughs> report. This is like what you're supposed to get. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just a personality tip. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I think it's a real thing. I think we have some people even on our platform that do direct lending and, and do some investing with us. And, and that's, the, that is, that is exactly the trade-off, right? You're trading off the ability to diversify into a number, a number of different loans in our case or deals in your case, but you're also going to give up some of that control. So it's a, it's a real, it's a real trade-off, I believe. Not always a bad one. It's just, Mentally, you've got to be there, I think. <laughs> 100%. And I'll just, I'll just add to that because I think that mathematically, I'll put it this way, despite the level of sophistication, it is very challenging to beat the mathematics behind diversification. Yep. So even if you really look at a deal and man, you visit the market, it's, everything's growing and it's in a booming asset class, things, weird things can go wrong. And those weird things are very difficult to predict, especially if you're at an elite level meaning that the bases are covered, right? So what I mean by that is if you invested in a fund, and this kind of speaks to your point, your business model, if you just have three assets that are performing per your investment, as opposed to just one, the likelihood that you'll experience, let's say, a month or a quarter that has no distribution is almost eliminated. Yep. I mean, my attorney would probably kill me if you heard me say that, but mathematically, you yep. know, if you're investing within a reasonable risk profile and weird things only happen once every 10 years, which is, I think is reasonable. The likelihood that you'll have to send a notice to investors to say, we're sorry, but the following three quarters will likely not experience cash flow because we had to replace the elevator. Right. You have three properties that are performing. That email just doesn't seem the same. Yep. And that's as a business owner, but also as an investor, that's exactly what I want to provide. Could not agree more. So let, let's let's move on to the next thing here. Uh, and, and the theme of the show is real estate investing unscripted. And, and as you know, and I've, I'm sure you being part of a lot of deals, you've seen a few of these, but um, no matter how much you plan, and I think you even just alluded to this a little bit, right? No matter how much you plan, no matter how good of a deal it seems like kind of going in, stuff happens, right? So um, if you could maybe share with us... Uh, uh, one of the stories that you have of, you know, a deal that you've seen or um, been a part of that like something happened that you couldn't have predicted no matter how much planning or due diligence you did. Um, what was it? Kind of what was the outcome and what have you, what have you learned from it? Yeah, sure. So before I even start this, I will say that obviously we started the company in 2011 and like I said, it's really favorable time to invest in real estate. So I don't have a lot of real cut your teeth horror stories as you would probably expect, but I'm, I'm not taking full credit for that. A lot of it has to do with due diligence. A lot of it has to do with market timing. Um, however, uh, the first deal that I really got hurt on was 100% for my own personal portfolio. I was just getting into the sector and I invested in, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have made this mistake. Wow. Sounds like this. I didn't know you could buy three houses for a total of $100,000. <laughs> That's how the story starts. You know, in the South, there's these houses that are $30,000 each, $25,000 each. And on paper, they rent for $600. So you're talking about a 2% rent to price ratio, which is pretty remarkable. Should probably produce something in the realm of like, a, let's say a 10% cap rate yep. or so, something in that range. Um, well, the challenge though, there's a ton of challenges with this. The first one, is that the gross dollars are so small that when half of the money is being taken for expenses, if you have to fly there once, your cash flow is basically eliminated at that point. And the reason you'd have to fly there is because the people that manage those properties do not have a lot to gain or lose depending on their performance. 
So yes, their incentives are aligned, but to what degree? $50 a month, yep. maybe $75 a month. So think about the level of sophistication of those managers. And that's obviously no disrespect to people that are doing that job that are listening to this. The reason I'm saying that is that if you're listening to this podcast, I know as well as you that you have a tremendous market advantage against your competitors. And so good luck out there. So um, my point is I like to make bets on firms that stand to gain seven figures or more. And so the level of sophistication of the people out there that I get to work with, uh, extremely sophisticated, you know, incredible backgrounds, some institutional backgrounds. And that's just the way that I kind of restructured my business after that experience. Cause I know it's extremely uh, common for people to struggle with that in the single family space. Um, you know, I took a bet on a sponsor, I guess a manager that I, I didn't understand the lack of incentive alignment from a gross dollars perspective. Yep. Um, and I can give you another example that's that's not exactly focused on real estate, but um, that single family thing for me was a pivotal moment in my career. I think that's a that's a big thing for a lot of especially coastal uh, coastal people that are living on the coast and wanting to invest out of state. Is you get into some of these markets where you can you can buy these homes for um, very attractive prices, and you think you can build a portfolio, but they do become difficult to manage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. There's a business out there. I think, I think to your point is um, for that business to work being local or having a partner that's local that can be boots on ground and, and taking care of some of the things is, is probably super important. Agreed. I, I really like to have going back to the passive approach. I like to have one other layer in between. So if the property manager, if somebody has a question, the property manager has a toilet that needs to be replaced, the property manager will call you if you're actively owning the property. I like to have the property manager call a sponsor that's already bought a thousand toilets and knows exactly what to do. Yep. And so I never even figure out that the toilet broke. And that's just how I'd like to create the investments. Um, another one that I had some challenges with that is interesting is an investment in a performing oil well. Um, this is what the sponsor that's incredibly successful the track record is just un, unquestionable. But the nature of that business for, for you or anyone that's considering investing, the oil business is as crazy as it seems like in the movies. <laughs> incredibly, the people that you're dealing with, like there's fifth generation, $100 million plus families that are just the most bizarre individuals. And at the end of the day, this is a, every business, it comes down to the people involved. It's also a very private business. So there's not really comps. It's all word of mouth, even at the highest level. It's absolutely remarkable. And so when you have a challenge, it's very difficult to, there's not a lot of liquidity. You don't, they don't buy and trade very quickly. And there's all kinds of weird intricacies of the business. Again, just going back to the first thing, I'm just a huge proponent of the the commercial space, but also just the real estate sector as a whole because of the relatively uh, simplicity of the asset class. Yeah. Uh, bricks and sticks, as they say, right? It's nice to be able to put your hands on and, and walk around and generally understand what's driving uh, demand and pricing. Um, couldn't agree more. Well, this has been great. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of uh, some of your background, what you guys are up to, how you think about doing due diligence and uh, sharing some of the learnings that you've had over the years. Listeners, listeners want to get a hold of you or learn more about uh, what you guys are up to or check out the podcast. How can how can people find you? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned, the name of the company is cashflowconnections.com. Probably by the time this is launched, we're going to be asimcapital.com. But you can also find the podcast at Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast on iTunes. It's cashflow, two words. And um, if you're interested in learning more about our investments or want to 
get a free ebook on the self-storage business, just shoot me an email at info at cashflowconnections.com. Cool. So check out cashflowconnections.com. Uh, check out uh, Hunter's podcast. Thanks again so much for coming on the, on the show with us. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think if I could summarize some of the key points that I had um, around due diligence, make sure you're doing reference checks on the professional resources. I really, really like that tip um, as well as verifying their experience via title reports, really simple stuff in, in, I can also speak from this experience. You'd be surprised at what people represent versus what's actual true. So do the due diligence. I, I love kind of your, your reinforcing of the division of labor and knowing what you're good at. Um, we're big believers in this here at Fund That Flip, you know, vis-a-vis our name, all right? We're not financing everything. We're, we're sticking kind of within our lane. And I think that's important no matter uh, what kind of business you're in, whether you're being going to be on the capital raising side, the legal side, the operator side, um, I think the more you can focus in and, and own a niche, um, the better off you're going to be. And then I think uh, I think what you were what you were getting at. Correct me if I'm wrong. Around kind of how you how, how you've learned about some of um, some of the, the lessons over time is how important aligning incentives are um, with your partners, right? Making sure everyone has enough uh, enough meat on the bone, if you will, to, to make it worth their while to just do the right thing. And if the deal is structured right, the investors are going to win, syndicators are going to win, operators are going to win. Everybody makes money, and you you get to do it all over again. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you again, Hunter. Really appreciate having you on. Hope, hopefully we, uh, we run into each other again at, a, at another conference soon. Yeah, I really look forward to it. And I'm also look forward to having you on our show in a couple of weeks. So thanks again for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Um, to check out uh, more resources, go to fundthatflip.com. Otherwise, look forward to uh, next time on the show. Your host, Matt Rodak, signing off. 